Support for Yagni is provided by Flipper Cloud. Are big launches stressing you out? Then you need feature flags. Flipper Cloud helps your team deploy the code now and then roll out features when you're good and ready. Get started for free at FlipperCloud.io. Today, I'm joined by Josh Pigford, a self-proclaimed dabbler and man of a thousand side projects. Most recently, Detangle UI, and most famously, Bear Metrics. I once bought a concrete planter over the internet from Josh. It's considered scandalous to write software, but not write tests. What is this, 1995? Do you have a QA department or something? And yet, despite the moralizing, many people still build tools while ignoring this core discipline. We discuss whether or not you need automated testing and also touch on non-deterministic APIs, why bugs are good for customers actually, and the greatest app developer of all time, Kim Kardashian. Welcome to Yagni. You had a tweet the other day that sort of caught my attention and the ire and attention of tech Twitter. You said, I've been building software for 25 years and sold software companies for millions of dollars. I've never written a single test. Yeah. And <laughs> that seemed to really grind the gears of people. So let's kind of start there. What was prompting you to think about that? Had you seen something about testing or what made you like wake up and choose violence? Right, right. It's one of those things like Twitter tends to surface as whatever, you know, is, is most abrasive or divisive. And I think I had seen someone else tweeted something about testing or something like that. And I was in the middle, mentioned the like AI developer tools thing. There's a tool called Detangle that we're building for it's AI-based stuff. And I'm like the sole engineer on it. And I had I realized like, okay, I'm building all these API endpoints and I don't have any tests. I probably should write but I don't even know how to. And then I was like, well, do I, do I care? And so then that's what I, that sort of prompted the tweet was realizing like, I couldn't write a test right now if you paid me to. Like, I just, I don't know how to do it. Well, there's lots of people that you can pay them to tell you how to write a test. Oh, sure. Uh, <laughs> not usually the other way around. I think that's interesting. And I think there's a lot to unpack there. The first thing that strikes me is that you sort of like felt like, oh, I need to write a test. I kind of sort of wonder why that is. If like you're saying, hey, I, it's not something that is in your tool belt normally. You've been able to build products that people use and had successful outcomes for you, but no tests. So is it just like something in the water that's like driving you to feel like this is something you should be doing? I ended up, thanks to the help of GPT, like writing some tests. I think what prompted me saying like, man, this feels like testing is the solution here was because I had all of these endpoints. Like typically when I build something, it's very UI heavy. I can go through and I'm just like, I'm, and a lot of times I'm building something for myself. So like I'm using the whole thing in depth and I, I can stumble upon a functional issue, which to me, like I'm sort of indifferent on what happens on the back end as long as the outcome of what's happening on the front end is what I'm after. You're almost constantly doing browser end-to-end tests. That's exactly it. Both as the developer and then also like you're building tools for yourself. So you're when you're not in developer mode, you're in like user mode. That's right. But then with this sort of API only thing, well, I've got Postman opened up and I've got a thousand random little endpoints that I just, I just go through and like click one at a time on all these. And I feel like I'm going to miss something here. Yeah. And, and especially the side effect or like the outcome of me missing something is not just, oh, one of our users gets an error. When it's a developer tool, it's our users' users who are all getting the error. And 
the downside of that is much larger. And so obviously there's something automated there I can do. I should probably implement that. Like, but that was a thought process there. It's interesting too. One thing that I find a lot, like a time when I feel that pressure of like, you should have tests for this, but then I find myself not actually doing it is definitely like when I'm interacting with party APIs, I think it's like very easy for people to say, oh, you don't control this system. There's all these different edge cases that could happen. Don't you want to like be sort of like protected against that? And I find that like very appealing, but at the same time, it's kind of like you have these like unknown unknowns. I don't know how necessarily a third-party API is going to break. Maybe they'll list out like, you know, here are the possible cases, but like it doesn't really do customers any good if you say, well, I handled all the error codes they described and this one they didn't describe in the documentation. So like, it's not my fault that instead of returning a JSON payload with an error key, they returned like a Cloudflare HTML page (laughs) and the app crashed because their infrastructure was in a weird state. It's like the software's got to handle that regardless. So I just wonder sometimes are people saying that I should write a test that sometimes this API returns a Cloudflare error page? That doesn't seem that practical. And I'm going to run this test every time I commit, you know, my code. And like, so I've tested 5,000 times this year that like, if this scenario has to happen and then if it doesn't happen, something else happens instead. So I feel like, especially on your new product, you've got that problem. And then it's magnified too, because some of these APIs are like non-deterministic in what they return, right? Oh, sure. I mean, a lot of the stuff is we're using Claude on the back, like Anthropic stuff, not OpenAI. Similar thing where I can demand a certain response from the AI, like some sort of whatever, and and tell it to return XML or JSON or whatever. But it might be having a bad day, and it's just going to not do that. And so it's very difficult to write tests for that. Not to mention, it actually costs money every single time I'm running these things. Right. And then I think like the obvious reaction to that from people that are heavy into like the testing culture is like, oh, well, you don't run against the real systems. You will like stub out the tests. And I think that makes sense on one hand, but then I think it just falls victim to the same problems of, so now I'm just returning like a fake API response. So I'm not really gaining confidence that the API hasn't changed. So again, like what, how is this test serving me and my customers if it's really just checking that this flat file in my code repository that's never going to change is returning. I think some of it is a little bit misguided. To me, where problems arise is with variability. And like tests, I think many times assume fixed outcomes, but problems happen when something like almost seemingly random happens, at least the user, right? Like maybe it's not even an error. Like there was a response from some sort of endpoint, but it wasn't the response the user thought. And what the user thought doesn't necessarily always align with what I or a developer thought. Well, and even I guess too, with these like large language models, it's like, maybe like, is there the concept of when you have a random number generator, you can give it like a seed so that it, it will return the same output every time. I'm imagining if you're saying like, so I know like, Detangle has an endpoint that summarized this text. It's like, well, if you make that API call and then make it again, are you going to get the exact, you know, no. character for character <laughs> response back? You're right. Not. And so, so even if you were able to test, it's like, well, then is your, like, how fuzzy is your assertion have to be that it's like, well, I got something that kind of had the right stuff in there. So one of the endpoints is this anonymization thing where basically we'll strip out any identifiable, personally identifiable information from it. And so like, The assertion that I make is essentially I'll pass it a phone number and then just assert that those numbers are not there. Like they're just gone. They're replaced with asterisks or whatever. And that's about the best I can do on that kind of stuff. 
this concept called Wittgenstein's ruler, which basically says if you have a ruler and you're trying to measure a table, but you don't really trust that the ruler is the, is accurate, then you're actually saying more about like the table is measuring the ruler almost. And I think that applies a lot in test suites in code, where if you're actually not so sure about how reliable your test suite is, any given test run is telling you more about the reliability of the test suite, more so than the reliability of the code base or the product. So it's kind of like you're measuring, the test suite is measuring itself instead of the test suite is measuring the code. We had this issue with bare metrics. So like at bare metrics early on, I first year, I was essentially the sole developer, certainly wrote no tests. Eventually, I stopped touching code completely, which is probably wise. All of the actual smart developers certainly built out like some tests. But the issue that we would run into is math isn't necessarily, you know, you think of it as being black and white. However, the data that's coming in for some like calculating the lifetime value of a customer, like there's literally an infinite number of edge cases there. Like just it goes on forever. And writing tests for that is almost impossible. There's just too many edge cases. And so that's the kind of thing where it's like, you end up spending all your time trying to write tests for every possible thing. And then it's like, for what? And the outcome wasn't wrong necessarily. It's just not what this particular narrow view of what lifetime value was. People often fall into this trap where they say, well, why does Stripe not have like a slash MRR endpoint? Like, why do you need a product like Metrics or Charmogol or any of these things? And it's like, it sort of, I think, highlights that there's a lot of problems that people don't look that deeply into. Because if you, if you actually say, oh, okay, like, why is there not an MRR endpoint? It's like, well, because it's actually like incredibly complicated to calculate that number. And people just want like a point number. They're like, I have 15.3K MRR. And it's, well, when you factor in cancellations and annual plans and subscription prorating and different billing periods and, and all this stuff, it's like, it's actually harder than one might think. So I think it is kind of reductive in some regards for people to say, oh, just test your business logic. It's like, yeah, but do you know anything about my business logic and whether or not it is conducive to being tested or it actually fits into this model of being able to have explicit test cases and deterministic results that we can assert against? That also still assumes that the data that we're getting from, say, Stripe in that case, is valid. Stripe doesn't have some sort of issue on their end. Certainly they would. And so it's whack-a-mole, but there's like a million moles and like you won't ever possibly, you can't even reach all of them. You end up like hurting from a business perspective. Everything else is suffering like for these small edge cases. And yes, so you maybe get some sort of amazing test coverage, but then for what? Like you spent a whole year writing tests. Yeah. I've recently been building some kind of analytics section of our product. And I think one of the things that I'm really glad we've had as like a guiding value is like how legible are these numbers to the people that are going to be looking at them? Because engineers, like we have this deep view to be able to look into the data and we can think about all these edge cases, but it's like, if I turn this around and put this in front of our customer, are they going to understand why we included this data and not this data? Are they going to understand what this graph is supposed to be showing? And I think it's very easy for engineers that are not sort of product minded to like find a solution that is like technically more correct or like we've included 12 data points instead of the three data points that you want. But customers then are like more confused because they're like, well, you know, what the heck? We had this recently happen, like a, just as a concrete example, like in our product, you have onboarding plans. And so you have phases and then within phases, you have tasks. And we had a different way of calculating how long a task took 
and how long a phase took. But when you look at like the numbers, you're like, well, shouldn't the duration of a phase be the sum of all the tasks? It's like, well, there's reasons that we can say about why those might not add up. But in the end, it was like, oh, yeah, that's what people would expect. So let's just stop calculating the phase and just sum up the tasks instead of trying to have probably a more correct way of calculating that. But then like nobody understands. And they're like, why is this number wrong? And then I'm like losing trust in the metrics completely. We reached this point with with bare metrics where, or I did, I guess, where I got so tired of us just constantly trying to fix bugs. I mean, like data anomalies, where I started just like try to convince customers that like the number itself isn't that important. It's like the trajectory, you know, like the ups and the downs and whatever, which I believe is true, but not everybody does. It's hard to sell that to somebody when they're saying like, I want the numbers. It's like the more decimal points, the better. And you're like, "Mm, not quite. Yeah. So one thing I think is kind of interesting that I've experienced in the context of like an early stage startup that I definitely did not experience in when I was working in kind of the consulting agency world is that bugs can actually, I think, be good for customer experience early on. And people are, are probably like, what are you talking about? But like a bug is actually like touch point with your customer. And if you can ship a bug, find the bug and fix the bug and then like proactively communicate, like you'll get these people that are like, oh, this is like, it's so amazing. Like I got this individual response from the founding team and I reported this problem and 10 minutes later it was fixed. I think that's just like a very underappreciated thing of sometimes it's actually better to like ship small bugs. I mean, obviously if it causes some huge problem, like that's one thing, but a lot of people I think are probably writing tests to prevent these bugs that are not consequential. And actually, if you're early in building a product, like could be a chance to like surprise and delight your customer. I completely agree there. I think what ends up being probably more detrimental is making assumptions ultimately about what a customer is specifically wanting or an assumption about how they'll use a product and the bugs or whatever that do or don't crop up from that. And so instead, it's like ship something, you know, Obviously, you want to attempt to do it correctly in the way that doesn't throw some error. But at the end of the day, it's a good thing to like be kind of rough around the edges, I think, as long as you've also got the mechanisms or the processes in place to address those tiny little bugs. Like we would do as part of sort of sprint stuff, have like a small bug sprint where we're just like, we just knock out like 50 random tiny things and they're all like attached to customer reports. And so then you just report back to all those customers that you just fix their random thing. And it's, it's a good thing all around. Yeah, I think we see this too, even like on Twitter, you'll sometimes see these people saying, oh, I'm the product manager for GitHub, like reply to this thread with like any small like paper cuts that are like annoying you and like, we'll fix them. And it's like, oh, it's a great marketing and customer happiness thing that you could also frame as well. They have poor quality software that could benefit for more rigor and better specs and bug testing. It's like, "Mm, yes and no, I think. So always strikes me is how obsessed a lot of engineers can be about reaching this impossible goal of bug-free software when they know more than anyone they're like that's a fallacy like that doesn't exist right but you spend so much time trying to make it bug-free when the reality is like these things just they're almost more like living organisms than anything and allow it to breathe a bit I don't know the, you know the psychological origins of it but at least for me like I always feel that I've been working on this over the years, but I always feel like a twinge of like pain when I find a bug and like something that I've shipped or like a customer finds a bug. And I think you just sort of like look back and say, oh, I missed this. 
I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I didn't do a good enough job building the software. And for a lot of folks, they tie their identity very heavily to that. And so you can say like, I have no bugs. I have 100% code coverage. I have produced this beautiful piece of engineering. I am worthy. And then a bug is almost like sort of invalidating that. And I think that can hurt somebody very deeply. It is sort of, like you said, an impossible goal to reach. One thing that I think is an interesting angle to look at like testing and like how it became so sort of like moralized and virtuous is that I think a lot of this came out of the early 2000s and the sort of software consulting world. And I think you can trace back some of this to the need to have a metric or a hard number to put software engineering in line with other like forms of engineering. Because a lot of software is like very fuzzy. You can say like, did it work? Yes or no. But it's well, are we including every edge case? Or is this project successful? When you are doing these big consulting projects, it's hard to have a specific thing to put on the success or failure of a project. So if you can invent your own metrics and then say, here's the number, this number is good, like bigger number, better project, and then work toward that, I think it's like, it is very legible to an executive who is used to looking at, maybe you're like, oh, our factory produces widgets or whatever. And as long as we're producing 15% more month over month, like all things are good. I do think there's a performance element to it, right? And I certainly have looked at this from a managerials, like when I, you know, running a company and I'm not coding anymore, well, then it's like, well, how do you know if people are being productive? But in the same way, it's like with a designer, there's not a performance metric. Like you can't quantitatively say this designer did a lot of design. And with engineers, it feels like you should. It's like, oh, it's code. Like what do your measure commits or something? So yes, code coverage feels like a way to quantify productivity or something. Yeah. But it ignores so much. There's a level of indirection as well when you're a consulting company. And I'm sure you've run into this, even just hiring freelance people or people joining your team where you sort of don't have control over the overall outcomes. So if you hire me to write like a feature, hey, write this endpoint on Detangle. And like you're hoping that the endpoint has some business outcome for you, right? Like it, we're hoping that we sign up more customers or, or something. Like I can write the feature. And as long as the feature isn't like actively harmful, it becomes a little fuzzy as did I actually help you achieve that goal? Because a lot of it just depends on factors outside of my control, right? It's like, well, did Josh market this correctly? Do customers actually have this problem? Did this a feature that even needed to be built? And then how do you sort of do attribution on, oh yeah, this feature actually is the one that raised our you know revenue by 10% this quarter. So I think in that same way, like if you can say, I don't want to be measured by the outcomes I produce. I want to be measured by these like code-based outcomes of I have 100% test coverage or I have this code metric or I wrote these many lines of code. I think it can be useful in that way, but ultimately is just like a made-up number that we're using to try to gain some control over our work and how it's evaluated. So I'm technically able to code, but I don't really consider myself like any, a real quote unquote developer. Like I don't care about the craft of coding. Like that doesn't just doesn't do it for me, which is fine. But there obviously are a lot of people who their code is their craft and they want to do their craft really well, valid. But how do you think a company should balance or help an engineer find the balance of their craft, doing their craft well and like getting fulfillment from that. And then understanding that there are business outcomes that also have to exist and they don't necessarily need that craft to be top notch. It's really like deep and sort of existential question, I think, for engineers of like, I think the first thing to do is sort of like, 
when the matrix like neo has to wake up and be like okay i understand how the world works now and i think if you're an engineer you should try to think about the context in which you're operating so if you were working at say thoughtworks which is one of these giant enterprise consulting companies it's like what are they selling to customers and then like what is your role within that experience that's being delivered and so thoughtworks has historically sold these principles of of software as a craft and quality code like that's sort of their differentiator and so that's what they're selling to customers so i think there you may say like well what is my role as an individual engineer on the project is it to be like sort of the factory like automaton that is like cranking out these things and hitting the numbers and i think ultimately you find that that is probably the case and what is your value to the business is how many billable hours can you generate and is the client overall happy with the outcome and then i think you say like okay that's fine am i operating in that context oh i actually work at like a 10 person startup company that was burning more money than is coming in this abstract entity of the business like values completely different things so I think ultimately people will be unhappy and unfulfilled when their own like internal desires don't match up with what the context of the business is sort of demanding. And so if you find yourself working at a startup that values moving quickly and we don't know that the software is going to be around in two years because we don't know if the company is going to be around in two years and you're feeling a lot of like inner turmoil around, I don't feel like I'm following best practices or I'm taking shortcuts. I think it's a sign that either you need to shift your mental model or you need to sort of like shift your environment by you know finding a new job it's hard to know when even from the sort of business owner perspective of knowing when to, to balance that because with bare metrics i was very just fly by the seat of my pants like half the time it was just we were hitting database resource limits and there were lots of you know just general bugs and errors and stuff but like i was fine with that and then when started maybe like financial planning software, like I started that, we had a bunch of money and it felt like, oh, this is more in the line of a banking app. This has to be super stable. And so that we end up spending a massive amount of time building this very stable system only for that company to fail, in part because we just had so much invested in the systems and the quality of the code because it felt like this sort of banking app. And then then we just shut it down. And like to me, that was the my biggest regret with that was we spent too much time trying to essentially write good quote unquote code because that felt like the necessity for that type of app. And I, in hindsight, it wasn't. Yeah. I think it's somewhat interesting to frame it as like you have to sort of earn the right to do things in your business. And so I think you could argue that like you have to earn the right to be able to build a 100% rock solid like backend integration syncing product. And well, how do you do that? Well, you do that by having enough customers where not having this thing is going to like cause a material impact on the business. And it's definitely like difficult to straddle. And and I think your example is a really good counterpoint to some of the like, you know, move fast and break things of part of the value of a financial product is like the stability. And so in the same way that like no product survives, you know, first contact with users, it's like if you're asking people to sign up with their bank account and your CSS is broken and there's like JavaScript console errors and you have to reload the page five times, it's like, are people going to use that? And then are you actually getting any validation that the idea is correct? Well, I feel like we never found the balance there. I mean, that was our problem was we ended up spending whatever, a year and a half building an incredibly solid technically product only to like not get anybody to sign up. And it's like, well, we should have been comfortable dealing with people saying like, ooh, 
this says my balances are wrong on these accounts or this stuff doesn't make sense or what like we should have been okay with that it's very scary i think wading into that because i think it does a lot of times point back to that like your identity as a producer of like quality goods whether it's software or or otherwise. I'm curious if you've found the same issue in some of your other businesses that are less like software based. You've done a lot of physical products and things like that. Like, How do you think about the quality when it comes to that? Do you feel like there's any lessons you can learn from, oh, I don't want someone to like have to return this t-shirt because it like unraveled, but that's like the cost of doing business. So with both, we, we mentioned earlier the like concrete planters and then the laser tweets. So with the concrete planters, like there's a lot of variables there chemically with like how you're making concrete. Even the temperature in my garage would affect the outcome there. So I found myself, but I mean, again, initially I didn't spend any time on this, but would quickly turn into, let me systematize this or like essentially have a checklist. Is it the temperature of this or the amount of water? And like I'm using like measuring stuff instead of just like eyeballing everything. And the same was true with the little like laser tweet wooden tweets we were etching. I found myself wanting consistency. Like that was the factor to try to like optimize or from a quality perspective was like, can I consistently with a product that's, you know, like wood is variable, but can I somehow have a very consistent outcome where if you order 20 of a single thing, all 20 will essentially be the same. So yeah, that's been a ton of time. Just like trying every possible setting on the laser cutter. And the thing there was that after you sort of nailed down the system, it was consistent. Like I didn't have to think about it anymore. Maybe that's the benefit of like test stuff. Yeah. I think people would say that's the ideal state is that you tweak and tweak and tweak. And then, and then you kind of get the system in a state such that like you have complete confidence that it's repeatable every time the tests run, they're green, you're good, keep pushing. Well, so the benefit there was, and I think this applies to software too, was with like the laser tweet stuff, like it got to a point where I had it systemized a tough where like I systemized it enough to the point where like my teenage kids could do the stuff. I could pay them to just do the stuff and didn't have to worry yeah. about it. And if you can hand this off to another developer and they're able to build something and it not and then deploy it and it not break, then that's a good spot to be in, however you get there. Yeah. I think that segues nicely into so my reply to your original tweet was something along the lines of tests are not just there for you. They're also like a guardrail for temporarily worse programmers is my little cute saying of it. And so to me, that's like a worse programmer might be like your example of like your kids, like your kids are probably worse at operating a laser cutting machine than you, or they're temporarily worse because they've done it less. I think that's an interesting framing of it. I think there is like a prerequisite there that like you do actually have confidence in your test suite to do that. Right. So like, if you just said, well, I have some tests, not like fully bought into the fact that if the tests are good, then like I can deploy this without even looking at it. But I think that's sort of the ideal that is at least people that are sort of fanatical about testing would strive for is like you said, you could bring someone new into the code base, even if they don't really know how it all works, as long as they don't break any of the tests, like anything they do can be pushed out with like out doing harm to customers. So I think the conversation here that a lot of times gets lost when people are talking about testing is context of the business, I guess. So you think of some massive, like a Microsoft, that's just how many hundreds of thousands of developers, whatever they got, like, Obviously, you've got to have something in place. Somebody can't just have all this stuff in their head, clearly. But like, what's the line all the way back to a solo developer who like no one will ever see their code except them? One of the replies to that was from someone who's, you know, builds lots of stuff. But the benefit of testing being 
that when they come back to the project, they don't have to worry about breaking it. And that felt like that struck a chord for me. It's like, oh yeah, there's lots of times where I'll come back to a project six months later and be like, what does any of this do? I have no idea. And I will break something instantly. And Tess would sort of solve that or at least dampen the downside. Yeah. I think it's interesting too, to talk about the software over time changes. And I think a big argument in the abstract for tests is like, this helps with maintainability. I wish people would get a little bit more in what they're defining maintainability as. But something that I think is interesting to think about is like, what is the payback period for that maintainability? And so when you're operating from a business sense, you may make an investment in a machine or a tool or something with your laser tweets. Like you may buy like a laser cutter. So you think about what's the payback period for that? Like how long is it going to take for you to recoup the cost of that? And that's something that I don't think people consider enough when they're talking about writing tests is it's just seen as like, yes, this will be good. This will help with maintainability. But something people don't think about is like, what is the payback period of that? So if it's going to take five years of the code running for you to like be saved enough by these tests that it is worth it, well, maybe your business isn't around in five years. Maybe in five years, that subsystem has changed so much that it's been completely thrown out and changed anyways. I think that in that vein, it doesn't feel like people talk about it as much, but front-end tests, everybody agrees now that stuff changes so fast, it's very difficult to like realistically write programmatic tests for clicking buttons and whatnot, because it just changes so fast. And I think there's a need to look at it and say, hey, maybe the payback period is five years, but we'll have released 12 different versions of this whole product in that time. And so you know, it doesn't matter. From a maintainability perspective, if maintaining means that every time you're like wanting to build something new, you have to go back and change every single test, then you've kind of wasted a lot of time there. I think a big valid trade-off that people don't realize they're making is when the majority of tests get written, you're basically pouring concrete on a structure. So that can be good if you are building a parking garage and you need it to stick around for a long time and, and you're not going to be making big changes, but it does come with a cost and that is harder to change. And I think a lot of times it's deemed no cost that if you have tests, then you'll be able to just easily refactor and change all this stuff. And as the kids would say, maybe it's a skill issue where you haven't written your tests well enough that they're completely decoupled. But like I find that writing really good tests like that is actually harder than just writing the good code. So maybe you should just stop at that writing good code and be happy with it there. <laughs> when you're saying, hey, we're going to try, we're writing tests along with the code that we're writing, like not necessarily just writing tests to address bugs or whatever. A lot of times it essentially doubles more or less the amount of time it takes to code something because you're having to code two different versions of the same thing, right? Like the test coverage version and then the actual code itself to some extent. I mean, that's a little reductive, but at the same time, can you afford to like every single thing take roughly twice as long because you're trying to have a lot of code coverage? Maybe, but again, is it worth it if in a month you're changing that entire feature and have to rewrite the test for it anyways? There's a lack of nuance too of what does need to be tested. And it's a lot of times a judgment call and it's hard to develop that judgment. And so I think people default to rules like you should have 100% test coverage because that assures that actually the ideal was like you needed, you know, 57% of the code actually needed tests. Then like, well, if you do 100, you're going to hit that 57. Do you think that part of the solution there is having developers spend more time with customers and if only to sort of bring them down a notch when they realize like customers don't give a rip about some of that stuff? Yeah, I think that's interesting. I think the other benefit of just getting in front of customers is that it sort of like humanizes errors more. It's not just, oh, I got like in century an error that said no method 
foo on nil or whatever. It's like Carol at this company can't do her job today because the app is crashing. And I think that helps you develop more of the judgment needed to know if a particular change is risky or like high impact. And I think that is the more important skill to develop is being able to, and you're never, you're never going to be hundred percent perfect, but being able to say, this is an important thing. I do want some tests. I do want at our company, we have a policy around code reviews where it's like, oh, if we think this is like a high risk change, like we require a code review. If we don't think it's a high risk change, like we don't require a code review because we have two developers. So if we said, oh, all code must be reviewed by another developer, we'd just be spending our time developing, reviewing. And so I think that is definitely something that is beneficial from talking to customers, but I guess more broadly, just like understanding the actual like full stack that extends outside of the code and includes the business, the marketing, the customers, the customer support, all those aspects. I think that's a good point where instead of defaulting to everything needs a test, it's maybe defaulting to sort of mission critical as far as customer outcomes go, should have a test. And I do, I agree that it comes from talking to customers and understanding what's mission critical. Like I'm very sympathetic to that because that's nearly impossible to scale. And like you talked about before, you're at, not even at the Microsoft level, but if you go from, let's say like under four to 15 engineers, it's really hard for everyone to have like that shared ownership and have enough of the system that they're responsible, that they develop that judgment. I think it's way more easier to sort of automatize the product and say, oh, I'm a front-end engineer on this product and we have a team of four front-end engineers and 10 back-end engineers and I'm just going to slice my work up this way. And I think you lose that like bigger picture that lets you develop the sense of like what is mission critical. And so maybe then you need more processes that are a little bit more of a blunt instrument to say like, yeah, all, t- all code needs, needs tests and all, you know, all front-end code needs to be reviewed by a front-end person because... It just doesn't scale up that way. So it's tricky. I mean, obviously, I think the lesson behind all the discussion we've had today so far is the context matters and what is good for one situation is not only not good, but like potentially harmful for a different situation. To me, any kind of engineering conversation, when it lacks the the greater context, very quickly becomes like just people shouting into the ether because for whatever reason, like they've, they've taken a stance on something. I think of this whole like TypeScript thing with DHH over the past few days, they pick an opinion. And a lot of times it comes from a place of, well, the bigger context here for most doesn't matter. It's okay if you, if you feel passionate about something, but development doesn't happen in a vacuum. There's a lot of factors. Yeah. So I thought there was an interesting reply to your original tweet here. And I think it does, to me, it highlights like an interesting dynamic in the difference, I guess, between like business and engineering. And so someone replied to you and said like, McDonald's makes a lot of money. Too. They're good at sales, they're good at marketing, real estate, cleanliness, and consistency. But that doesn't mean I should copy their recipes for making mediocre hamburgers. I think about this like this concept, I personally think about it a lot. I think one can make the argument that McDonald's is the peak of culinary companies. There's a lot of virtues to like being able to scale that big and like they must be doing something right. It's like the burgers are maybe not your favorite, but they have to be at least pretty good. Otherwise, no one would go there. I think there's people that would say, I would rather be McDonald's. And I think there's people that say, I would rather be like a Michelin star, three-star chef. I think there's room for both, but you mix the contexts, then that's where like you have these people that are incredulous that someone would think that McDonald's is like a good restaurant. And it's like, if you step back from this set of objective measures, like it's pretty hard to deny. And I think go the other way of, yeah, if you put a McDonald's hamburger next to some fine dining meal, it's like, oh yeah, I can see how these are like worlds apart and this is better. 
better tasting food, but you're changing the evaluation criteria. So where people get hung up on is the craft side of that. Would any chef at a Michelin star restaurant be like, I'm going to go work at McDonald's? No, but they're serving different customers there. They understand the sort of outcomes are different there. And I think remembering that the customers generally depends on some care, some don't. And knowing that there's a spectrum. The most interesting, take it further into software thing is like, I think I've heard people argue before that Kim Kardashian is like the greatest iOS app creator of all time. (laughs) I think that really like ruffles people wrong because it's like Kim Kardashian has done is made an app by a sticker of her that like can go in your text message thing. And it's sold millions and millions and probably like billions of dollars. Oh, it was the top charting app and becomes in really stark contrast where you'd say like, oh no, like the code is crap and they're just like churning out these crappy sticker apps and Kim Kardashian herself, she doesn't write the code. Like she's not the best app developer that that exists. And I think it just, it falls neatly into these lines of, like you said, craft versus business. What I find myself wanting to respond to every single developer sort of argument is like, it's just, it doesn't matter. Yeah. It doesn't. I mean, it does to some, but the idea that it should matter to everybody, it just doesn't. It's not a big deal. There's this whole, again, the thing about TypeScript, like how a lot of the people who are being dogmatic about it, many times it comes from like a junior perspective of like somebody who hasn't zoomed out and realized, okay, in the grand scheme of things, this is very complicated. Like there's a lot of nuance here. And I think that happens a lot when it comes to testing is like people can be really obsessive about testing until they have to make some business decisions around the software. And that changes a lot of outcomes. It would be interesting to take someone that is like, very zealous about you must have this and like let's look at one of your code bases and see are you following your own guidance or you're sort of like taking care of your own house before chastising others and i think a lot of times what usually happens with these is is every once in a while you do get people that are sort of on opposite sides of an issue and they will sort of agree to sit down and let's go through a specific example and what i've found is that people are much more nuanced and understanding and willing to concede trade-offs when you've got the actual person on the room talking about a specific thing instead of in the abstract, kind of one way shouting at each other on Twitter. I think the thing that I wish more people would do is if we go back to like the McDonald's versus Michelin star chef is not to say that like one domain is right or wrong, but it's like, what are the things from the other domain that I could pull in that would improve my situation? So I think we both would agree that no Michelin star chef is going to go want to work at McDonald's, but if like, oh, I want to open my own restaurant, like what can I learn about the operational side of things? Like you probably could learn something from going into the average McDonald's. And same thing, if you're working at McDonald's, you could probably go into some fine dining restaurant and say, oh, here's a little tactic that they do that I could see how I can twist and tweak and apply and remix it into my thing. So I think that's what I would hope that people would take from your original tweet is they'd say, oh, I have a strong reaction to that. That is completely different than what I believe or what I've been told. Like, I wonder what I can take from this. And I think if they take that approach, they would say like, oh, like I've talked to you today, like, oh yeah, I can understand how Josh thinks that, yeah, this business may not be around or we don't know what customers need yet. And I could take that back into my own work. And even if I am working in a place where our code quality standards demand that I have 100% test coverage and I'm working on a team of 500 engineers or whatever, completely divorced from customers. I think there's lessons to be learned of like, oh, how can we like know if this feature is going to be used to know if it's worth investing in? How can I like take some things that like Josh is doing to still be successful with his products, 
maybe it is feature flags, maybe it is slow rollouts, or maybe it is like customer beta groups or things like this. How can I like take those ideas and incorporate them into what I'm doing, even if I don't agree wholesale? Yeah. I mean, you know, that's the, <laughs> that's the hope for any like disagreement is that both parties can uh, find some kind of common ground. I do want to touch on AI writing tests. So you, you sort of said this thread kind of came back and said, I've now written my first tests with the help of GPT. So I'm kind of curious what that experience was like for you. And my kind of thought is like, well, if this is going to be a very viable way of writing tests, then is it worth the investment in learning how to write good tests if we think that in two years from now, like almost all unit tests will be generated by some kind of GitHub Copilot equivalent? I'm of the camp that the actual sort of production of tests themselves will be automated. I hope so. It feels like learning a new programming language to me to wrap my head around tests. And that was, you know, I use Cursor for sort of AI-based development. And since it's got full context of the whole app, it's able to write pretty solid tests. And at least as far as what I want from an outcome of, of a test. I still don't really understand or haven't tried to understand the syntax of RSpec and like how to actually write this from scratch. And I feel perfectly comfortable with that. Because the hope is, yes, Copilot can just generate a bunch of stuff itself in the next couple of years. Yeah, I think it's interesting. And my usage has been fairly limited of kind of these AI tools as far as the testing has gone. But one thing that I have noticed that was that kind of piqued my attention was I'll make the test file and I'll sort of like write out the text description. And like GitHub Copilot can get 80% of the way there with the first pass autocomplete of the test. And it does need some editing and some human touch to tweak things a little bit, but I think just being able to like autocomplete some of the like dumb like typing of characters is going to be really helpful. And I think it does change some of the cost in the equation of cost benefit of writing tests. So well yeah, because it's all to me it's almost easier to spit out a ton of tests. I think to me it drastically sped up again like using cursor and it's got like full context. Like I would add say a new controller in Rails for some new endpoint. And so I would add that controller, each method, and then that's all in one file. And then I'd swap over to the test file for it. And it knew about that file and what I had just written. And so then it would like write all the tests for me on the spot. And like, no way would I ever possibly try to do that myself. And so that's a win for everybody. I mean, customers are included. They win from that. And I get to develop stuff faster because of it, you know. So Josh, we've been chatting here for a bit and it's time to answer the question software testing do we need it yes interesting not what i thought you were going i think it's because of the nuance and depends on the context but ultimately i think that's probably as beneficial for most people yeah and then a, a shocking reversal i think i will say no you, you do not need you do not need software tests it's more of a question of your context and what makes sense for you i don't think this is one size fits all. Everyone must have automated software tests. Sure. I don't know if I actually believe that. We'll see. <laughs> really? It's like so, writing stuff now for other projects and I'm not writing tests. It is always interesting. I think the one thing that I find is like for the longest time, it was like for work projects, of course I would. And then like personal projects is like, oh, I wouldn't do it. I think it's a little bit of like the stated versus like revealed preference of sure. I can say that this is good and useful and then it's well, then why aren't you doing it when you're just hacking on something real quick? Yeah. Yep. Thanks for listening. You can find show notes and links at yagni.fm and find me on Twitter 
at underscore Swanson.